Hello and welcome to the More Like Canada edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined as ever by Anna Shemansky. Hello. And by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. And the news of the week was, for those of you who are in another country or something, there was an election in America. We are going to talk about the consequences of the midterm elections. And the consequences are surprisingly far-reaching. We are going to talk about Medicaid expansion, cannabis, the way that the Democrats now control the House Financial Services Committee. We're going to talk about minimum wage. We're going to talk about Puerto Rico and banking and all manner of stuff. So we're going to try and work out how much we can squeeze in to this episode because there's a lot to talk about. But let's start with Maxine Waters, who is basically the grandmother of the House of Representatives. She's She's been there forever, I think. I mean, I, th- I think she dates back to like Abraham Lincoln's time, something <laughs> like that. I did look this up. She has been on the House Financial Services Committee since 1991. She knows how it works. She knows how it works. <laughs> She's a very, very experienced lawmaker. And she is now going to be the chair. After 28 years on this committee, she finally has the seniority to become the chair of the committee. Um, And let's just say that she is not a sort of Tim Geithner-style technocratic technocratic Democrat. She she has a bullhorn. Although I would would say that she rhetorically is is very, very vocal, very, very, you know— far on the left in some ways. But in terms of actual policy, she's really been willing to work with other committee members, to work across the aisle. She you know, worked with the Republicans in terms of um, allow, making it easier for small companies to raise capital. So I think there's a little bit of a split of her kind of public persona and what she actually does in legislation. She yeah. likes small She's she's big on small business. Mm-hmm. This is this is true. She I I think she was quite closely involved in the Jobs Act. Mm-hmm. Um she's in no way, shape, or form in favor of big banks. She's not going to be the, – the, there's no way that the large, say, top five banks in the country are going to look at Maxine Waters and go, that's exactly the person I want in charge of the House and um, Services Committee. Yeah, I mean, she she did an interview with Bloomberg this week after the election, and she talks about her priorities. She called out Deutsche Bank. I think she called them a bunch of money launderers. <laughs> she did, yeah. she called Which is out- actually empirically true. Yeah. They were fined 600 and some million dollars after being in Involved in a money laundering scheme in Russia, which amounted to like $10 billion. And one of the interesting things about the Financial Services Committee is that it is going perforce. It is going to become highly politicized because of this whole Russia thing. And the other reason she called out Deutsche Bank was because I believe it was like one of the only banks to lend to our president, Donald Trump, and she mentioned that also as something she wanted to take a look at. Deutsche Although Bank I, is, is definitely the lender of choice for the Trump organization and the Trump family. Or the lender so, of last resort. Tying, <laughs> tying that to money laundering kind of makes a little juicy little endeavor that Maxine Waters is setting up. Right. There. Although I do think she was trying to make it very clear in that interview that that is not going to be her number one priority. Because right. I think there was a tendency of people to think like, oh, the only thing this committee now is going to be doing is issuing subpoenas. And I think she was making it clear like, no, we actually do care about things like affordable housing. Yeah. She mentioned housing 
closing, she mentioned um, reining in Mulvaney at the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau because he is, you know, really been trying to run that agency into the ground and it had been a successful so this but is, I have a question yeah. successful what, agency what can they really do like what right. power do they really have because that that agency is so independent what power oh what power does the committee have yeah. i mean over, over the cfpb that's really the question for, overall for this this committee and for Maxine Waters what power is she really going to have i mean she can call these bankers in she can hold hearings but like well, okay. she has subpoena power, and this is the thing which which I think is this line that she has to walk, is that on the one hand, she does want to look, and the Democrats in general do want to look like they're being constructive and trying to actually do something positive rather than just throw rocks at the president. On the other hand, you know, given that the Republicans control the Senate, given that the Republicans control the White House... Um, it's not like they can actually pass legislation. Right. So what's left, you know, is that if, they, if you're not going to pass legislation, you can hold all the hearings you like about trying to, you know, improve, um, you know, the state of public housing. But you're not going to get very far given the Republican control of, of the Senate and the White House. So instead, what you wind up falling back on almost inevitably is investigations of Trump and Trump-connected banks like Deutsche Bank. Well, but there are other things. There, well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but there are other things that are a little bit under the radar, but that are important in terms of extension of flood insurance, as well as making a actually allowing the Exim Bank to function. Like these are things that actually a lot of Republicans support. And if anything, Jed Henserling, because he was so far on the right wasn't playing ball on. So there are actually some real issues that she could work on. So Wait, Jen Hensling was about... the is the outgoing chair mm-hmm. of the Financial Services Committee. And he's, yeah, as you say, he's right wing, even by Republican House member standards, and just really doesn't want the government to do anything. Now that we have a Democratic majority and also just like not Jed Hensling running yes. this committee, <laughs> um, one of the things I think that we're going to see quite a bit of is a real emphasis on Puerto Rico and and trying to make sure that the government continues to help out Puerto Rico, which you know after all does not have any representation of its own in Congress. Um, this is where the Democrats, especially in in the House, feel like it's their job, you know, to to stand up and start trying to help this island rebuild. It's already going to get $82 billion um, in federal aid, which is much more than people originally thought it would from the federal government. I think the federal government has quietly been rather more generous to Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico than people thought it would be in the immediate wake of Hurricane Maria. But now that we have the Democrats really having this ability to start shouting and pushing, I think that, you know, the island could benefit even further. How How is the island right now in terms of its finances? I, I had read recently that it's doing better than believed. Or... So well, my was... favorite chart is the um, is the benchmark Puerto Rico bond price. Now, Obviously, you know, um, my favorite too. Favorite. Puerto Rico defaulted on its bonds in 2016. So this is defaulted debt we're talking about. We're talking about debt which is paying zero interest. And all you're going to do is like eventually come to an agreement and hopefully end up getting some crumbs at the end. Uh, and that debt was trading at about 20 cents on the dollar um, immediately after the hurricane. It has now recovered to about 65 cents. Well, because there was also mm-hmm. just a consensual debt restructuring. I mean, there was a, uh, there was an approval of the debt restructuring for, I think, about $5 billion 
of their debt at what their for their development bank, and it's going to be like I think a fifty five cent or fifty five percent recovery value. So the, the one of the weird things about Puerto Rico is that it has you know I think this is a technical term like. 80 gajillion different issuers. <laughs> yes. Um, there's no, it's not like the government just issued all of the debt. There was the power company, the development bank, various, you know, government entities. And, and yeah, trying to do like, a, and, and as Anna says, it seems to be sort of being restructured on a very piecemeal basis and they all have different liens and different priorities. Right. Um, so, you know, you look at one bond and you try and say, well, you can draw a few conclusions from that the the main point is that it has gone up a lot um that after the hurricane people were very pessimistic that there would be recovery now they're much more optimistic and i think part of the reason for that you know and you can argue this and i would is that people are ultimately expecting that all of this aid that is coming into the island is going to wind up sort of at some point trickling into the revenues of the government which will then have money to be able to pay bondholders and you're like well yeah but the idea is that it should stay on the island that's so interesting that this terrible tragic hurricane actually is helping the country shore up its finances well, I mean, no. let, let's probably say, still ultimately more harm. Than, okay. Well, I mean, well, I mean no, a lot I mean, of harm, the, obviously. The bond price is now, let's just say it's back to pre-hurricane levels. Okay. It was, it was about 70 cents pre-hurricane. So it's rough. It hasn't changed that much. But just sticking with the um, Financial Services Committee, the other thing which I do want to talk about besides Deutsche Bank, the other big bank which really should be worried, I think, is Wells Fargo. Yeah. Oh, my God, Wells Fargo. Every day... Every day it's something else with this bank. At Huffington Post, uh, one of our reporters, Zach Carter, wrote an article. I think the title is, Why Does Wells Fargo Even Exist Anymore? <laughs> it's a good question because, well, a lot of banks are still – I mean, I saw a headline you know, just a few minutes ago sort of talking about how UBS is now being sued for stuff it did in 2006 uh-huh. yes. with residential mortgage bonds. Um, Wells Fargo is being sued for stuff it did in 2016. Like, Wells Fargo was the one bank which just – really just does not seem to have been able to get its act together. And it recently released a report saying, oops, did we say that, you know, 400 people lost their homes to foreclosure because we had no idea how to issue mortgages? It was actually, it was like 550, you know. They they have, they're clueless and incompetent and no one has really been held accountable for this in terms of like, you know, certainly no criminal prosecutions. That's true. I mean, there was an executive shakeup after the right, um, account scandal, you know, where it was found that the bank was signing people up for bank accounts and credit cards and other things without their knowing about it. And they were fined. That was back when the CFPB was controlled by someone who actually cared about protecting consumers. And and fined Wells Fargo billions of dollars, yes. which would never happen under the current CFPB. And in 2016, they actually replaced the CEO. Well, and Yellen did kind of as a parting gift <laughs> have put like a basic like a growth cap on Wells Fargo. So yes. like that's 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 not insignificant. But it doesn't seem to have kept it. Well, I think some of these things were also. I mean, my guess is this is like a legacy thing where they've had a, such a horrible culture that you're going to probably find that so many things happen. So my guess is it's going to take a. I mean, I'm not making this as an excuse, but I'm just saying it's probably going to take a little while before things really, really get cleaned up. So we need and, this committee and, to come in yeah. and really like break it down. And this is where the Financial Services Committee can really do something, precisely because the CFPP is not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
while the CFPP was still being run by Richard Cordray, you could more or less rely on him to be on top of this kind of thing and make sure that Wells Fargo was being held to account in some way. Mm-hmm. Now that the CFPB is like this huge lump which does nothing, it now falls to the Financial Services Committee to stand up and, and start doing these investigations precisely because the CFPP won't. And I actually think you might be able to get some bipartisan support on that just because like pretty much everybody hates Wells Fargo at this point, <laughs> except Jed Hanserling. But outside of that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. But there's more to these elections than just the Financial Services Committee and Maxine Waters. Um, Emily, let's talk about the minimum wage. Yes, voters voters voted to raise the minimum wage in um, three states, Arkansas, Missouri, and... Another one we'll look up for you <laughs> that I didn't write down. We are so I'm really weird. sorry. I'm so sorry, everyone. Um, and this is notable because um, in Missouri, for example, the Democrat running for senator, Claire McGaskill, she lost, right? And you would think if people would vote for a minimum, wa- minimum wage hike, they would also vote for a Democratic senator who would support a minimum wage hike. But there's this interesting split that's happening around the country where voters are deciding that they want these progressive policies like raising the minimum wage or in a few states they voted to expand Medicaid, um, but they're not in those same states, red ones. They're not voting for the Democratic politicians, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think Democratic policies are often more popular than Democrats. Yeah. And we see that with Obamacare, which has become much more popular now that Obama isn't president and there can be this like decoupling of the person with the policy because the policies on their own are hard to argue with. I mean, well, the, well they're genuinely popular. <laughs> they're um, genuinely popular. And, yes. and, and one of the interesting data points that we started seeing now is the job growth in Seattle and Washington State in the wake of their $15 an hour minimum wage, um, which has been incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually like the mm-hmm. third strongest metro in the country in terms of job growth. And everyone who said that this $15 an hour minimum wage would prevent job creation, it's just like, well, it hasn't. It and you see hasn't. and you see the country's largest employers raising their wages there anyway. You know what I mean? Right. Um, there's, a, I think, almost a universal recognition that the minimum wage is ridiculously low. It's $7.25 an hour. Yeah. I mean, I think when people are arguing <laughs> That's against... That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think when, when you're talking about arguing against the minimum wage, I mean, I, I think this unfortunately can become a little bit extreme on both sides. Whereas I think the Republicans often kind of have this like what they learned in their freshman economics class of like, oh, well, if you increase the minimum wage, then then employment always declines. And it's like, well, that's not actually true. However, I sometimes think on the left, there's also this idea that like, you never have any negative consequences when you increase minimum wage. And that's also not true. Well, I, th- I think I think empirically speaking, it's very, very hard to find any. Like we have now seen a bunch of minimum wage hikes in a bunch of cities and states. And yeah, I'm sure at some point, once you have like a couple of hundred of these, like you might be able to point to one and say, well, you know, 
employment went down or something. But so far, it hasn't happened. Well, just globally, that's that's not entirely accurate. If we're talking about minimum wages, a lot of it has to do with just how high you raise them. And what we're talking about in the U.S. has often been relatively modest gains or increases. And so usually that is the type of increase that doesn't have the type of really strong like negative impact on the, 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 the kind of lowest skilled workers. Because that's usually what the issue is, is that it's usually the lowest skilled workers who, if you are going to have any unemployment issues, it's with them. Yeah, And, and that and, is and it, historically and, not... And it has, as you say, like it has happened in developing countries. No, we see this in developed countries as well, because often what happens is you have a, a, a minimum wage that can be a little bit too high that's tied with very strict labor laws. And that's not a good right. system. But, but, but that, again, that's not what this is. I'm this just is, saying yeah, that... Is, yeah. like, so let's not Let's not start comparing the United States to that kind of minimum wage hike because that is not the kind of minimum wage hike that, is, that anyone is proposing in the United right. States. Right. I'm just trying to say that when people that like I think when you're talking about why anybody would not like a minimum wage, like that is usually the argument they're going to bring up. And I think it's important to understand the full argument. Right. But again, the federal minimum wage in the United States is absurdly low, I think. There's hard. You, it would be hard to find someone who would disagree with that there's, statement. There's literally yeah. only one place in America where the federal minimum wage is not absurdly low, and that's Puerto Rico. What is the minimum wage in Puerto Rico? Well, it's the same. It's the federal minimum oh, wage but- is seven twenty-five. <laughs> but but because Fair the economy is so weak and wages are so <laughs> low, that's the only place in America where you can conceivably make a case that raising the minimum wage might harm the economy. Outside Puerto Rico, there's nowhere. And it's interesting. I just also want to note that um, the raising the minimum wage in Arkansas, Missouri, um, will help women more than men. Uh, the majority of workers making minimum wage in those states are women. So these measures also have um, an added bonus benefit of helping close the uh, gender wage gap. So we have the ability, I guess, now that we have a Republican president to start for, for Americans, especially in red states, to start embracing progressive policy, policies, even if they're not embracing progressive candidates um, in the kind of this is a kind of like Nixon in China moment. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And if you think about Trump's appeal, I was thinking to the to the working class. He did try and paint himself kind of as someone who supported progressive policies like he talked about raising the minimum wage at one point he said he wasn't going to get rid of medicare he was supposed to be the working man he kind of like conned people i think into thinking he supported some of these progressive policies if you follow what i'm saying well um, i mean he's never been much of a policy wonk yeah. <laughs> right but he, he he put he put that vibe out there so um but i think politically this is a problem if democrats have popular policies but unpopular politicians that's well i think it's also just just it's a mean, big this, roadblock this is not a controversial statement but i think it just speaks to the fact that politics have become so red team blue team that it's like it doesn't matter if you support the policies if the person's wearing the opposite jersey you don't support them I'm shaking my head it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And let's talk about cannabis because. One of the big pieces of news somehow on the day that everyone was trying to um, digest the election results was that the most 
anti-cannabis politician in America, Mr. Jeff Sessions, um, who was also in charge of all federal law enforcement when it came to marijuana, wound up getting fired. And so a bunch of marijuana stocks rose on that news. Um, But then quietly at the same time, electorally, we had Missouri and Utah and Michigan all passing um, various levels of legalization. We're now up to 33 states which have some kind of legalization of marijuana, 10 of which now allow it for recreational use and it's basically just completely legalized and it's and and it, we have now become Canada <laughs> and so which is which is basically the you know the dream of all progressives it's like oh can you imagine if we became Canada <sighs> uh, people, people people don't realize just how kind of weirdly fucked up Canadian politics can be but, yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, let's not go there right now yeah. let's just let's not, let's not mention Doug Ford in this yeah, let's get it. Point. but um so what is going to happen with cannabis? My cards on the table, my expectation here is that there is basically zero chance of the federal law changing, that cannabis will remain illegal under federal law, that so long as it remains illegal under federal law, the fact that states allow it is not really going to allow it to expand that much because even if your state allows it, what you're doing is still illegal. And if you're you know, running a cannabis company, you're still running a criminal enterprise, even if you're in California or Colorado or somewhere like that. Um, but I do think that there will there is a decent chance that around the edges, things will become less forbidden, I guess. Like, for instance, the one thing which I think is a genuine possibility now is that somehow the federal government is going to allow banks or make it, you know, open the door to banks banking cannabis companies. One of the big problems with cannabis companies up until now is that they haven't been able to find a bank to, like, bank them. Um, But I guess I'm confused because, yes, Sessions was very anti-marijuana, but it's not like Donald Trump is going to replace him with, like, an Eric Holder type um, attorney general. Like, why wouldn't DOJ under whoever Trump points be just as hostile to marijuana as it was under Sessions? Well, maybe not in like the next six months, but it just seems to me if we're looking, you know, the next five years or so, it just seems like we're progressing in a direction that very few people outside of Jeff Sessions seem yeah. opposed to. Like, yeah. it just doesn't seem to be a big issue on the right, is where it's actually a somewhat bigger issue on the left. And and there are, you know, a lot of libertarian Republicans. You know, yeah. you, you, can, you, know you know that if you put Rand Paul in charge of DOJ, he'd like legalize everything tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, he I also guess, wouldn't have a government. So it's, <laughs> I guess long term, it's inevitable, right? That that marijuana will be legal in the United States. Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that at all. Not saying. That. I'm, I, I, I'm definitely. That's what not I'm hearing. That. I kind of think that we're on that. Go moving in that direction, especially now that you're having more companies kind of moving into that space. Other like kind of. You know, drinks companies like yeah. kind of because it does seem like it's the type of product that eventually will become part of the kind of alcohol space. Well, exactly. And I think I think that what what we have seen with the reaction to the opioid crisis is a realization that you can't just let companies drive policy that when you have companies like Purdue basically driving government policy on addictive drugs and harm, potentially harmful drugs, like very bad things can happen. 
Bad things have happened with opioids. Bad things have happened with alcohol. Bad things have happened with tobacco. The government is cracking down on vaping. This is one of the other big pieces of news this week is that there's going to be this massive crackdown on companies like Juul and flavored tobacco and vaping because, you know, there's, I think, this increasing understanding at the government level that what these companies are doing, even if it's legal, can be incredibly harmful and that it needs to be regulated. And I think there's going to be a lot of hesitation to allow companies to start driving the, this, you know, cannabis first. On the other side, you're also now going to have more lobbying power to try to legalize it. When you have, if you have larger companies who are now moving into this space, that's the other thing I think that it, they could also be pushing on the side of, yes, there's going to obviously be regulation of this product in the same way there's regulation of alcohol, but there does seem like there'll be more money behind legalizing it. It seems like if the federal government sticks to its stand that marijuana is illegal and then in the states it gradually becomes legal piecemeal, it seems like you run into the same problems with marijuana that you do with the other drugs, whereas it's not really regulated and people don't really understand the consequences of legalization, maybe. Well, um, I think and, with the and, other drugs, I think, you know, there's virtually no regulation at the federal level. So like, say, alcohol is quite effectively regulated at the state level. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like guns. You know, it changes wildly from state to state. But there's almost nothing that the feds do. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that the federal government is going to be want to be is going to want to be more involved in that. Like the idea that the federal government is going to do almost nothing on the um, cannabis front and just leave everything up to individual states, I I can't see it happening. Or well, you could also get depending. It'll be really interesting to see what happens, especially like post twenty twenty. If hopefully we get a um, someone other than Donald Trump in there, who you, you I mean you could also get a federal government that just doesn't even if they don't themselves legalize it they just don't actively prosecute anything like they just kind of allow the states to develop their own industries and then eventually it becomes legal but that's what i wasn't understanding about what felix was saying because he was saying there needs there's going to be a regulation regulations around marijuana because we've learned our lesson because of opioids but like it seems like that's not the direction we're going in it seems like we're going in a direction of either benign neglect or like um you know anti-marijuana so the benign neglect thing works on a kind of criminal basis in terms of do you prosecute people for selling and using cannabis it does not work on a corporate basis that you're not going to have banks doing something criminal even if they know Mm. they're not going to be prosecuted you're not going to have large companies doing something criminal even if there's a nod and a wink from the federal government that hey we're not going to prosecute this like no general counsel would ever sign off on that so you're going to need the federal government to do something more than just nothing you know (laughs) (laughs) which is a lot to ask (laughs) it really is um and that and and plus at some point you know there will be a big debate in at the federal level about the harmful effects of marijuana and the way it can cause psychosis and violence and various things like that and we are going to have data really psychosis and psychosis violence, and yeah, and violence. Yes. really yes. have you really okay cuz that came as a surprise to me and um and it's it hasn't been reported widely and we are going to have data from states as they start legalizing it and as marijuana usage starts becoming much more measured and you can see where it's going up and how much it's going up, we are going to have actual data on 
you know, the rates of, of violent crime and stuff like that. Well, and see shouldn't we know about that before it's legalized? Yeah, like, that would be nice. Just really one, one would think, yeah. I feel upset about yeah. that. It also seems like <laughs> you should probably have like drinking or like driving while high laws as well. You know, like those, there's a lot of things that work into this. Yeah, it actually seems like this is, I mean, I know I'm supposed to be progressive and I work at HuffPost and we like legalized marijuana, but it does seem like we're going about this in kind of a willy-nilly it hasn't really been way. thought through yes it's like um, everyone's high that's working on it and so the question is like is there a chance that the government or the federal government is going to be like grown up about this and and put together a very coherent thought through policy on marijuana no even the canadians <laughs> haven't done that yeah so yeah i think the chances of that are slim this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And since this is the big political edition of Slate Money, and since the Iran sanctions went into force this week, Anna, um, this really isn't an electoral thing. This was basically just imposed by the White House, and I don't think that the elections made any difference one way or the other. But what what on earth is going to happen now? Because like this huge Iran deal, which was put together so painstakingly by the Obama administration, is that now completely dead? It's a little bit of a mix, which in itself is kind of a bad thing because uncertainty is very bad for economies, especially economies that are already having trouble like Iran's. Because what ended up happening is that the um, the U.S. did issue a lot of waivers to, I think, the eight different countries that are still going to be able to buy Iranian crude for like a six month period. And then those waivers can be extended. So right now, I still think of like half of the daily supply is still going to be sold. But it's still very, very bad for Iran because it's, we're going to have this system where it's like, first of all, like every six months, what's going to happen? And already you have a situation in Iran where the economy didn't benefit quite as much as people thought it was going to after sanctions were removed. And so now you have you know massive inflation, you have massive unemployment, you have this tremendous uncertainty, which makes it impossible for businesses to operate. And at the same time, the Trump administration obviously thinks, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to bring them back to the table and they're going to renegotiate. They're absolutely not going to do that because they understand this was a unilateral measure. All of the other countries that were involved in the deal still want the deal to be in effect. So I think they're probably going to say if we can just I mean, I don't know this, obviously, 100 percent, but it seems like they have very little incentive to try to get a new deal. It's more like, well, let's wait this out till a more reasonable leader gets in. Um, We did see. Everyone's favorite Belgian nonprofit, Swift, yes. <laughs> um, basically banned all 
money transfers in and out of Iran. That happened immediately. Yeah. And this is actually the bigger deal in some sense. And this was actually a bit of an issue when the last time sanctions were um, removed, but they still were issues with the dollar system. Because if you can't access the dollar system, it just massively increases your trade and finance costs. So when you already have a country that is having massive financial problems, putting that into the mix, it just means that like nothing good is going to happen in that but country. Swift until is more change. than just dollars. Even if you want to pay Iran in euros, you basically you have, have to, to do that over the, Swift. Yes, that is true. But that's also part of just Iran not having access to the dollar system, which essentially all global trade goes through. And I read that um, the sanctions are actually benefiting Russia now. Maybe you can explain more about this. They're going to pick up whatever oil trade that oh, Iran. Li- yeah, I mean a little. Bit. I mean, like, lost. Yeah, I mean, like right now in terms of who's actually like accounting for the lost production a lot of that's going to be the saudis are already they're just pumping more oil essentially in ter- and in terms of oil effect on oil price it's essentially had no effect on oil price because first of all everything had already been priced in and then actually oil prices have came down significantly this month which had absolutely nothing to do with iran it had far more to do with inventories in the u.s and the fact that we had just had a bit of a bubble in the summer um, caused by a number of things so Yes, it is true to a certain extent that a number of other oil producing countries could slightly benefit from this, but I don't think that's going to be an enormous issue. And the one detail um, in the piece about Russia was that because you can't use dollars, Russia wants to use some kind of bartering system <laughs> to work with countries so, so, to work the, around like. So Sanctions. we we will get a bunch of Iranian <laughs> oil and we'll give you a bunch of like Matryoshka dolls. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded um, great. Sound like a really good plan. excellent plan. Yeah, but excellent is plan. is there a mechanism in place um, to prevent Iranian oil from simply just getting sold to Russia and then Russia selling it on to the rest of the world? I don't. I mean, there probably is. There are. I'm sure that there are safeguards to a certain extent in place, but also usually when you have sanctions, there are ways to evade sanctions. And, and I'm sure some of this oil will still find its way to market. And and there's no doubt that Russia is going to continue to buy Iranian oil, right? I mean, they have no reason to abide by an American well, sanctions. China is going to continue to buy Russia or um, China is going to continue to buy Iranian oil. I mean, I, I just it, this is going to be very, very bad for Iran. However, that doesn't mean that Iranian oil still is not going to make its way out. Okay. Um, let's have a numbers round because, you know, there were lots of numbers around this week. Emily, you're looking very puzzled. Oh, I was just trying to think of what number I wanted to use, but I got it. I'm good. Okay. What number do you want to use? Oh, 7,376. Okay. That is the number of acres of land owned by Apple. And that is a drastic increase, um, from 2011 when it owned 584 acres of land. There was a piece in the Financial Times that it's a little bit of a mystery what they're going to do with all this acreage. And this isn't counting their office space. Um, so well, is this just like, you know, a bit of backwards, like trees and farms? Or what is this? I, I don't know. It's the um, is it, is acreage it, is the same it, size as Cupertino, apparently. But is this urban? No, I think they think it's like going to be data centers, oh, maybe okay. solar farms, things like that. My number is 271 million. Uh, I feel like Anna's going to like this one. Um, 271 million Chinese yuan, actually, which is about $39 million of debt, which was issued by Chuying Agropastoral Group Company, um, which 
ran into debt servicing issues. And so um, the holders of this debt have agreed, instead of uh, taking their payment in Chinese yuan, like you would expect, they have now agreed instead to take their payment in ham. <laughs> Speaking of bartering. Like, wow, that's so much ham. I imagine just like debt restructuring. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Well, we're going to lower your coupon by 2%, but we're going to give you a 10-pound ham. <laughs> and th- these are very high-end You hams. get a ham, and you get a ham. <laughs> there are a lot of hams being sent out to bond, bond holders, and they're very high-end, expensive hams. People are going to be having a, a good, like, you know, It sounds like year. a delicious deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can't compete with that. <laughs> well, you but, had the helmets last week, yeah, and I yeah, feel like yeah. I'm still living didn't, off that. Didn't help LSU. Um, so... Uh, my number is actually sports related again. Uh, is fifty thousand dollars? I was actually listening to the Hang Up and Listen Slate podcast, and they were talking about the WNBA, and that's actually the starting salary for WNBA players. And their median salary is like seventy five thousand dollars. And like, I get it that the WNBA is going to be paid significantly less than the NBA because the NBA is massively profitable. The WNBA is not. All these things totally get this, but like. The WNBA makes less than the D League. That's like the men's like uh, minor league. Like that, those players make that. Like someone who just just came out of high school, basically. And and like I get it. These are very different things. I, I but don't it's get still... it. You keep on saying that Wait, you get it. Wait, the WNBA because... players make less money than D League male players. So, the, well, so there's this woman. There's this WNBA star who's featured in a wealth simple ad who is like so unbelievably overqualified it's ridiculous and there's this really quite compelling ad which shows her progression compared to a more or less roughly but not quite as qualified male player and his starting rookie package was four million dollars and hers was forty thousand dollars oh come on it's literally one percent Right. And it's like, I, I guess the only reason I do say that, like, because these are just such different things. That's why I almost feel like it's it's tough to compare the NBA and the WNBA because they are just such incredibly different things. However, it does seem like you're never going to be able to keep the talent also in the U.S. when they can go overseas and make twice as much. So women players can make twice as much if they go overseas. Well, that's still in the $80,000. Right. But I the mean... problem is just that, unfortunately, women's basketball just still isn't, especially like the WNBA, like literally isn't profitable. So when you're comparing that to something that's incredibly profitable, it's going to be but, tough. But these things are not set in stone. You know, there are reasons why the NBA is profitable and why, you know, and it's basically because of deals around television rights. And I do think there are definitely ways that they could. Television yeah. can start showing more WNBA you know I mean people uh, they love women's tennis they can get into women's basketball it's true they really do love women's tennis mm-hmm. there's oh, well, no reason know. why they couldn't love women's basketball or, Great. Or even and women's you're not going to have soccer. a star if you pay everyone $40,000 right. a year yeah. so it's like you're starving this thing it's never going to get off the ground and then you can good number one, one of my favorite days like you know little anecdotes from that is that the one of the things that male basketball stars do to just because they're male basketball stars is they when they when they finish a game they'll give their jersey to one of the fans you know some kid they'll be like here have my jersey the women can't do that because they only have two jerseys for the entire season (gasps) are you serious first of all can we all just pause and reflect of how much felix seems to know about this one (laughs) sport about the the knowledge about wnba And not to mention, like I'm, I'm now flashing back to to, to stories about um, women's 
club football, like soccer, mm-hmm. in, in the United mm-hmm. States, yeah. where they wind up playing on like crappy yeah. baseball fields, mm-hmm. and it just yeah, it's not good. It's not good. We need more equality in sports, as in everywhere else. Um, talking of which, we're going to have a fun s- slate plus segment about the vitally important question of. Can you expense a strip club on your corporate credit card? (laughs) Um, That's coming up in Slate Plus. And for everyone who subscribes to Slate Plus, thank you very much for doing that. For everyone else, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, Keep the emails coming. SlateMoney at Slate.com. Thanks to Max Jacobs for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.